This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. All of it yours. Uh, this morning, the myth of ownership. We conclude our series that we've been doing called Be Rich, and uh, I'm excited about today's message. I, I got up this morning a little earlier and... Um, Got myself ready, went into the kitchen and sat down to have a big bowl of cereal and turned on the TV and, and uh, up pops the channel and, 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 you know, that I hadn't chosen. It just came up and it's um, Dr. Charles Stanley is teaching. How many of you know Charles Stanley? All right. All right. He's been around a long, long time. Guy's about 80 years old, still pastoring. And, and, and Gail and I years ago visited Atlanta and, and uh, we said, let's go. We were there on a Sunday. Let's go to First Baptist Church. So we went to First Baptist, the old First Baptist Church. It was downtown. Been there many, many years. The pews, you know, the choir and their blue robes and, and the whole nine yards. Well, since they've, they've left that, that place and moved out of town and built a new facility and got a whole new look, you know, and Dr. Charles Stanley trying as best he can to kind of bring himself into the 21st century. You know, he's still wearing his suit and tie, and I know he's never going to get rid of that. But I, and, the, and the people are sitting in nice chairs, you know, and uh, the pews are gone, and kind of a neat-looking background they had. And, but what I was most impressed with is he was sitting in a chair uh, behind a table like this, you know, just a round cocktail kind of a table and, and no more pulpit and that kind of thing. And I thought, Chuck, you got it right. So um, I, I was kind of, it was kind of neat to see him uh, and listen to some of the things he had to say this morning. He's a great, great man of God. Um, I wanted to share uh, just a, a note um, from that I asked for several weeks ago. I, I asked for some, some of your stories about giving and generosity and so forth. And uh, here's one that I got that I want, I want to share with you about generosity before we get into our, our message this morning. But, but this person wrote to me and said, when my ex and I split up, I had no idea how things would go or if I was going to be able to make ends meet. And one day I got a plain manila envelope with $1,000 cash in it. No note, no name. I assume it came from the deacon fund or from someone in the church. I didn't need the money, so I saved it. And as I heard of others in need, I anonymously gave it away. It changed my whole perspective on giving. I count it as a great blessing. I thought, what a great testimony, because a lot of us would have said a thousand bucks, and we would as quickly as we could run out and gone shopping, you know, with it, and, and said, Here, here's what I'd like to have, this is extra money, and so forth. I put it away, she said, and then as I heard of people who had need, I, I, I anonymously uh, gave funds away. Um, contentment, which we talked about last week, we kind of spent some time with contentment, 1 Timothy chapter 6, lends to generosity, and generosity is very simply a byproduct of a godly life. And we saw last week how the Christian who wants to live a, a life guided by God's principles is going to surrender to God the desire that all of us have. We're all born with this, we, and I point out last week, we see it in two-year-olds, the desire that we all naturally have. It's an innate part of us to have more. I know what I've got, but I want just a little bit more. Uh, the, the, the famous uh, billionaire, Howard Hughes, um, was asked one time, he's been dead many years, and he was kind of a strange fellow, but you know, he, was, he was just as wealthy as wealthy gets, and someone said, well, how much is enough, Mr. Hughes? And Mr. Hughes' answer was just a little bit more, just a little bit more. 
When we surrender to God, that desire to have more, more stuff, that's when we can we begin to really understand contentment. We learn to be content with what we have, and then we can begin to be, once we're content, then we can begin to become generous. I want you to listen to Paul's testimony. The Apostle Paul was a missionary, and as a missionary, he was totally dependent on God to, to provide his needs as he traveled throughout Europe and Asia, planting churches, witnessing, evangelizing. And guess who God uses, by the way, guess who God uses to support missionaries like Paul and those we have today? Who does God use? Somebody tell me. The church. He uses churches like Nag's Head to, to support missions. To the Philippian church, who had been the only church at the time helping him financially, they stuck out. They, they gave generously. He wrote these words in Philippians 4, 10 through 14. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your care, you have renewed, excuse me, your care for me. You, I got your check in the mail, kind of what he was saying. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need. And here, here's a part of the verse that a lot of people quote. Maybe you have this memorized. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul said, I've learned to be content. Now look, I know both how to have little, and I, I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. He says, I've learned the secret of contentedness. And he said, um, verse 13, and you can quote this one most likely, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, how many of you know that verse? I'm able, and you quote it oftentimes. That verse is about being content. That verse is about being content. We use it in a whole lot of applications, but if you read it in that context, he's talking about what? Whether I have nothing or I have an abundance, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, I have learned that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. Even for the apostle Paul, did you get this? Even for you know this guy that we maybe look at and say one of the certainly one of the top five Christians that we've ever heard of in our life and in, in all of history, all of Christianity, but that we know about, the Apostle Paul said contentment was something I had to learn. I had to learn contentment. Why? As we've said throughout the series, contentment is not natural. Contentment's not something you're born with. Good night. You know that, you mothers. You know how long did it take for that baby to start squawking? And why do they start crying? Because they're what? They're not content. I tell folks when, when in, our, in, our, in our introduction class to our church that uh, nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's born into this world a Christian. You become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. And, and I tell the story of how my parents took me when I was just a few weeks old, and we went to the church one Sunday, probably Sunday after the church service, and the family gathered up with the, with the minister there, and, and he, he poured some water in my head, and, uh, and, and gave, you know, what is his Christian name, and gave me godparents and all the rest. And, and some people think because they went through that at some time in their life, that makes them a Christian. But I, I explain, when I was six 
weeks old and the, my parents took me to church and they did all that with me sitting in somebody's arms that did not make me a Christian. Why not? Because I did not believe in Jesus Christ. I was not ready to do that. I believed, I tell them, I believed in two things when I was six weeks old. I believed either I was hungry and I let mama know when that was ha- well, true or I believe my diaper really needs changing. You know, one of those two things, those, those are the only two beliefs I had at that age. You have to believe Paul had to learn contentment and he learned that contentment comes from Christ because Christ gives us, listen, he gives us the strength to say no. He gives us the ability to say no and Paul had to learn that. How do I say I have enough? in a world that's constantly making me feel dissatisfied with what I have? How do I find contentment in a media-driven culture built on advertising? How do we find the power to say no when we can afford many of us to say yes? The key to saying no, get this in your notes, the key to saying no to more is awareness. And awareness works both ways, positive and negative, when, when awareness is keeping up with the Joneses, always looking to see what everybody else has, that kind of awareness, look at what they just bought. Look at what they just did to their house. Look where they went on vacation. Awareness, when that's the focus, awareness fuels discontentment. It makes us feel even more discontented. When I'm always looking around at what everybody else has or does, The problem with that kind of awareness is that it's always looking to compare. But when awareness can be used in a positive way, when awareness becomes a sensitivity to others' needs and being aware that God wants me to be his tool to help meet that need, then awareness tames discontentment. It brings it down. It helps us to learn contentment. Let's say I get a text from Gail. Uh, Sometimes this happens during the week. She's at home late afternoon. She's fixing dinner. Gail, Gail is a wonderful Mexican cook. All right, if you, have not, if you have not experienced Gail's refried beans, she makes the best refried beans this side of the Mississippi River. How many of you know that I'm telling the truth? All right, she does, all right? But she's making, let's say she's doing, she's fixing enchiladas or something for dinner and she doesn't have any sour cream. Gail likes sour cream on her enchiladas. That's not very Mexican, but she likes that. She'll send me a text. Hopefully, I'll notice it. You know, if you text me, there is a better than a 50-50 chance I'm not paying any attention to it. But she'll send me a text, say, Rick, will you stop at the store on the way home for a quart of sour cream? That's the need for dinner. We need sour cream for dinner tonight. So I say, okay. And I go to the store, and I have to, you know, you know where the sour cream's located? Not up front, is it, Charlie? I wish you would put sour cream right there by the cash register so that when I go into the store and I need sour cream, it's right there. Bing, bing, I'm gone. But no, you put it, Charlie manages a food line. You put it all the way in the back because you know Rick's coming today. And he needs sour cream. But I know he wants a lot of other stuff. So to get to the sour cream, i got to walk all the way to the back of the store past everything else. I need sour cream. That's all that I need. The text said sour cream, but I leave the store with three bags of things I don't need. Do you ever do that? Anybody else beside me? You see, I went from a mission of need to a mission of want. 
As I walked through that store looking at those items on the shelves, I was much more, I was aware of much more than sour cream. In fact, because my forgetter worked so well, I might have gotten the store and loaded up the cart with all kinds of stuff and gone out without the sour cream and got home and said, well, did you bring the sour cream? Oh, yeah. And it's, I've done that before. Right? My awareness triggered my discontentment as I looked at all those other things that I wanted so much more than I needed. But let's say my truck dies. I told you last week I have a 2001 Dodge Dakota. It has 223,690 miles, something like that on it today. And let's just say it breaks down and the cost to fix it isn't worth it on a truck that, that old. So, you know, we discuss it and yeah, it's time to replace it. So diligently I shop around and I find two trucks I like. One is used and my monthly payment for that used truck is going to be $350 a month. After I put my down payment on it, $350 a month to pay for that thing over the next 14 years. <laughs> the other truck is newer, has fewer miles on it, has a few more bells and whistles on it. I'm not going to ask you if you have, have a, drive a vehicle that the, the seat heats up in the wintertime, but if you do, I hate you. Um, <clears throat> I think of you when we have those days in, in the teens. And I don't, I don't pray nice things about you. Um, it, it's going to cost me $450 every month. And I can afford, frankly, I can afford either one. Neither one's going to break me. But I've also been made aware that one of our missionaries is building a shelter for victims of sex trafficking in Thailand and is raising funds to make that happen. I'm aware of that. And Christ is going to be shared with those men and women and children. And, and that $1,200 a month I would save in a car payment between the two trucks really could be used for something far greater and certainly far more eternal than a truck. If I've been made aware of the need, then I can become more generous. It's because I've learned biblical contentment. I'm free to buy the less expensive truck and to give the extra $100 to that need in Thailand. Now that's all hypothetical, but do you see how that works? If you and I are going to be good at being rich, and again, we're all rich, we have to begin cultivating awareness of things that really matter. What really matters in life? Those things that make a real difference, those things that matter to our Heavenly Father. Because here's the deal with, you, with every single one of us. Awareness controls everything. Every spending, every saving, every giving decision I meet, meet is, uh, or make is controlled by awareness. Our awareness has to be opened to what's beyond what I can see with my physical eyes. We miss money that we waste and misspend. Do you ever get to the, maybe to the end of your pay period and you wonder where did it all go? And you realize, if you be honest with yourself, the money that, uh, that I maybe wasted and misspent, we miss money, we poorly invest. But here's the deal. We never miss what we give away to meet a need. Never miss it. I, I know where that $100 went. I know. We never miss it. 
When we mishandle money, we're discontented. And when we mishandle money, we have regrets. When I mishandle money, I'm poorer. But when I'm responsibly generous, then I find contentment. And as Paul told Timothy, great gain. See, awareness is just one way to gain power over discontentment. Another way is to disconnect from the awareness pipelines that fuel your discontent. Disconnect from those things. Like what? Well, don't turn on QVC if that's a temptation to you. uh, By the way, that's not my problem. All right? QVC never, I never, no. But there are other ways, other things. Cut up your credit card if it only serves as a way to buy now and pay whenever for once. Cancel that magazine, that catalog subscription. You ever notice how in the fall, the catalogs start showing up? Um, what's that place up in Maine that sells all that cool winter clothes? Hello, you, you've got that catalog. Okay. That's a fun catalog taken to the bathroom, guys. You know, just go through there and dream. Cancel those subscriptions to those things if that's your temptation. Skip the boat show, skip the gun show, skip the whatever show it might be. That you know if I go there, I'm going to have to spend something. Cut off, disconnect yourself from those pipelines. They're all environments that feed discontentment. And discontentment not only leads to reckless spending, but discontentment dilutes your ability to be generous. There's one more principle I want to share in this series before we finish out this morning. Uh, On the first Sunday, I touched on it by reading one of our partner's stories about trusting God with finances. And this principle is found in both Old and New Testaments. And if we we don't get it, hear hear me, if, if we don't get this, if we don't get this principle, it's going to, we're, it's going to counter, it's going to, it's going to, we'll see it as going counter to what's been instilled in all of us as what we know as the American dream. All right? If I don't get this principle, I'm going to see everything that has been instilled in me since I've growing, grown up as being counter to to God and his word, and a counter to the American dream. I think we'll all agree, especially that those of us who have been able to travel to other places, have been able to go to other countries, especially maybe on a missions trip like our young people are going to in a couple of weeks. We've been able to go to other countries, other places. We're a blessed nation in these United States, aren't we? We have so much. You know, I don't, think, I don't think anything of walking into the kitchen and opening the refrigerator and finding something there to eat. I'm kind of surprised. I would be shocked if that wasn't the case. I open my closet. I've got plenty of clean clothes to wear. And if my clothes are not clean, I take it for granted, to be honest with you, that in my house is a washer and a dryer. I don't have to go down to the river. I've seen women down at the river washing clothes and drying them by hitting them on boulders on the riverbank. But I've also learned this principle, and it changes how I look at everything I own. And if we get this right, please, if we get this right, all the other aspects of living in a godly way with our riches, including contentment and generosity, are going to be easy. Here's the key to it. This is the heart of the matter for us as Christians. Write this down. 
Put this in your heart. I belong to Christ and all that I have is his. Everything that I own is his. How you handle your wealth is going to be determined by your core objective in life. How you handle your wealth is going to be determined by your core objective. And what is your core objective for the wealth that you have? Think about that for a moment. What's my core objective? Some of you would say, my core objective is to provide for my family. That's my core objective. That's the main thing, main reason I work and I have the funds that I do. And and while that's noble, let me say to you, if that's your only objective, you might not be good at being rich. You can be very wealthy and take very good care of your family, but at the same time, you might struggle to be a generous giver. We saw in the last couple of weeks how the very rich people in our culture give the very least. They're not generous. Another core value that we might have is to save as much as possible. That's what I, I want to save as much money as I can. And saving is an, is an important thing. I believe it's important that you have an emergency rainy day fund. I think that's wise stewardship on your part because you don't know the future. But even with a great savings account, will you be good at being rich? We call people with great savings but zero generosity. We have a word for them, don't we? We call them misers. Have a great savings account. They're poor at being rich. To make as much as I can, that's my... My core, that's my core objective, to have as much, make as much as I can. Some people are great at making money, but not many of them, but many of those people who are great at making money are not so good at managing money. How many times, by the, hey, Donald Trump, you know, you think about the richest people. How many times has Donald Trump gone bankrupt? Anybody know? Four times. Four times. <laughs> He's great at making money. He just can't hang on to it, you know? I think of professional athletes and the so many stories that I've read and I've heard about professional athletes who were making millions of dollars a season in their sport, only to find themselves bankrupt and sometimes homeless just a few years after their careers ended. There's got to be a better objective than to simply make as much as I can. Another one is to spend my money well. I'm not going to ask how many of you are couponers, you know? And that's a good thing to do. I think that's, an, I think that's great stewardship. You see your money as a tool to accomplish other things. You know, and we've all seen the bumper sticker. Maybe you, some of you have it on the back of your vehicle, the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. You know? I'm going to spend my money well. But And each of these... Each of these objectives, provide for my family, save as much, make as much, spend it well, they all have merit. There's nothing bad about any of those. But there's one objective that pulls the others into balance. There's this one that's, that really is the true north on your financial compass. And it provides a good system that will guide every financial decision you make. And that is this one. All I have is owned by God. All I have. The greatest king the nation of Israel ever had was a man by the name of David. When David became king, Israel was still really a fledgling nation. 
among the other kingdoms around them. But because of David's military skill and leadership as a commander of his armies, they were able to defeat their enemies. They were able to enlarge the kingdom to the borders that God had given them. When he promised the land to Abraham, they prospered as a nation and as a king, as the top dog in the whole country, David became a fabulously wealthy man. And in many ways, David's situation is not unlike yours and mine, because we live, as Americans, we live in the richest time in history. Because David was a man after God's own heart, meaning that David truly did love God. He wasn't perfect, but he truly loved God. David came to a realization about who he was and who his nation was in God's economy. David had always seen God at work. You think back through David's life. He had always seen the Lord at work, going back to his youth when he, remember the story as he stood before uh, Saul and said, I'm going to go and, and, and kill this giant Goliath. And how can you do that, young man? Well, I was in my father's pasture watching his sheep and a bear came and I killed it. And then a lion came and I killed it. He had always seen God working in his life. God had been there with him through all the battles and using his musical talents David wrote many of the psalms that we have in our Bible that are songs of praise to God. Many of them, God, thank you for being the provider of all I've received. David David would write these things and sing them to God. And one day he was sitting in his beautiful palace and he he must have, from his palace, must have been able to look over and see the, the top of the tent that was the tabernacle, that was the house of God that belonged to Israel. And he, he had to have looked over and thought, you know what, we've got to do something better. Here I am in this magnificent palace, and my God only has a tent. And to David, that was not right. So he decided to do something about it. And his decision was, we're going to build God a house. We're going to build a temple for God. And so he got down and he sat down at his table and at his desk and he drew out plans. He designed what would become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he allocated gold and silver from the national treasury to pay for it. He even donated a large part from his own personal finances for the building of the temple, perhaps millions of dollars. And when he announced the plan to the people, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build God a house that he deserves, a house worthy of our God. When he announced the plan to build a temple to the people, the people gave. I mean, the money started pouring in. They were excited to join David in this venture. They still realized as a nation that God had blessed them, that God has protected us. And like their king, they wanted, to, they wanted God to have the splendid, magnificent house. And in the midst of all this, David prayed a prayer that gives us insight into his heart and into the greatest principle we can know about the purpose of money. And his prayer tells us how much we should think about and handle our money. And it reveals in this prayer, you'll see the key to being good at being rich. Here's how this prayer begins. Read it with me in First Chronicles, follow along, chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. Then David praised the Lord. In the sight of all the assembly, meaning this was a public thing that's happening. And David lifts up his voice 
and begins to talk to the Lord, praise him and pray to him. And David said, may you be praised, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. David looked back over his life and the past before his life, even before he came along at the history of the nation of Israel, and he realized the greatness of God and how awesome God is. And he's saying to God as he begins this prayer, God, what we're about to do is all about you. It's all about you. And even though David was the king, he's the king now of the greatest nation on earth. He's the most powerful man in all of the world. He recognized God as the king of kings. And so he continues in verse 11. He says, for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. Yours, everything belongs to you. Don't miss that. David said everything belongs to who? Oh, that wasn't very enthusiastic. David said, everything belongs to who? To God. It's all yours. All means all, and that's all all means. It's all yours. All the silver, all the gold, all the money the people have given, it already belonged to God. It wasn't theirs, and they gave it to God. He said, it's already yours. They were just moving, get this, they were just moving God's money from one place to the other in order to build a home for the Ark of the Covenant. And then David said this to God. Let's read on in this prayer. Riches and honor come from you. You are the ruler of everything. In your hand are power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and give strength to all. David says, God, not only does it all belong to you, you're the source of it all. It all comes from, it belongs to you and it comes from you. You're the source of all things in life that money can't buy. What, like what? Like power and might and honor. In other words, everything we enjoy in life, hear me, everything we enjoy in life comes from God. Everything. No matter who had what, no matter who has what in this world today, it ultimately belonged and belongs to God. David prayed this again in a public meeting, and there are no doubt that some people probably in this crowd are listening, and they, they, they were thinking, man, I know how hard, David, how hard you've worked for all of this. I know what you suffered for all this kingdom. I know the battles that you fought and the, and the friends that you've lost in battle. To build the nation of Israel, they had seen his skill and his wisdom as a leader. They knew he had made sacrifices for the good of the people. And now they're hearing their king say in front of them, it's all because of God. It all belongs to God. And David takes no credit for it at all. And he wraps up the prayer with these words in verses 13 and 14. Now, therefore, our God... We give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? The people are thinking, dude, you're the king of the greatest nation on earth. But he says to God, but God, who am I? 
And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we have been given, we have given you only what comes from your own hand. It's pretty rare to see rich people with a perspective like this. David even considered himself to be unworthy of the opportunity to be generous. I don't even deserve God to give this to you. I'm unworthy of that. So many rich Americans have an opposite view and, say, and would say, look, this is mine. I worked for this hard all my life and I can do with it whatever I want. And we view success so many times here in our culture as purely the result of hard work. And while there, I, there is truth to that, I mean, it does take hard work. But the truth is that it is God who gave us the opportunity and the skills to work hard. Everything comes from him. So if it all comes from God and it all belongs to God, what should be the one thing that determines our approach to money? What should be your main objective with what God has given you? Provide for my family, make all I can, save all I can. So what should be the number one core objective? How about this? Honor God. With what I have, honor God with everything that I possess. Maybe some of you are thinking a little bit deeper here and the question's popping up in your head. Well, if God is the source of all I have and God already owns it, how can I really give it to him? If he, it's already his. How do I give it to him? And you know what my answer to that is? Exactly. It's already his. How do I give it to him? You're right. Exactly. How do you give something to someone when they say, I already own it? Think about it. If I give God a percentage, let's just say you give God a tithe, which is 10%. Am I free now to say, okay, I've given God his cut. The remaining 90% is mine to do with, do with whatever I want. Does that sound like David's perspective on this? Absolutely not. The reality is everything we have, our possessions, our income, all of it, listen to me, it's all loaned to us by God. We are managers of his property and wealth. That's what the word steward means, manager of somebody else's property. And you know, if, if you loan something to someone because you, 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 when you do that, you loan somebody a tool or a car or something, you loan something to someone, you expect them to take proper care of it and return it in good shape. Why? Because what I loan out doesn't belong to them or what someone loans me doesn't belong to me. It belongs to that person. So I want to take care of it for that person. God owns it all. So how do you view your stuff? Do you see it as God's or do you see it as yours? Well, guess what? I'll tell you how God sees it. God sees it as his. And he wants you to honor him with it. He doesn't want to take your money. That's how some, oh man, they get to that part in the service where they take the offering. God just wants to take my money. God doesn't want to take your money. That's not what an offering is. He doesn't want your money to take you. By the way, God's not going to take it away. Why? Why isn't God going to take your money away from you? Say that again. Somebody said, because what? Because it's already his. He's not going to take it away from you. It's already his. 
Why? Because he's not a taker. God is a giver. And when you grasp this principle, again, very simply, I own nothing. It's all God's. When that becomes part of your heart and soul, then God gives you the freedom and the peace that come with letting go, with contentedness to be generous. Let me ask you a question only you can answer. What would it look like for you to honor God with all your stuff? Just think about that, about your stuff, your home, your vehicles, your possessions, your money. What would it look like for you to honor God with all your stuff? How would you share it with the church? How would you be generous with your neighbors and with your friends? Are you already honoring him with the first fruits? Or are you just giving God the leftovers? How would you honor God with all your stuff? Maybe honoring God for you would include doing better and providing for your family. Maybe it means spending less and saving more. Maybe it might mean liquidating some of what you have. It also means honoring him with your time. We said last week, generosity has to become a lifestyle. And so here's a challenge I want to put before everyone who's a part of Nags Head Church. The challenge is this. You, I, we only have this one life to serve God. That's all I have. That's all you have. And I'll be 60 years old in just a few months. My life is at best three quarters gone. I only have a quarter maybe if I stay healthy and live a while. Left to serve God. This is all that I have. Once I die, my opportunities to serve this present age are done. I want to challenge all the partners of Nags Head Church. Here's the challenge. In the next nine months, I want you to find somewhere, some way, or, so, or maybe more than one place, more than one way to commit, listen to me, four hours of your time in the next nine months. Now, I'll be real honest with you. That's not super generous. But I'm going to challenge because some of you have not done that. Four hours of your time in the next nine months to, your, to some kind of outreach. And I'm not talking about your ministry here in Nags Head Church on Sundays, your connection group. I'm talking about outside, other time. There's a list up on the screen. See if you'll put that up there of upcoming opportunities and the approximate dates they'll happen. And the truth is, and these are things that we do pretty much every year. The truth is, these things are staffed by a fraction of our church. I could go around the room and start calling out your name, say, stand up. I've never seen you at any of these things. I'm not going to do that. Whew. Nor am I going to say, if you have served at any of these, would you stand up? Because then those of you who are sitting down are going to want to find a place under the chair to crawl. I'm not going to do that. But I want to challenge you. If you're going to be generous... To be generous with your time. Uh, we have some people in this church who are extremely generous with their time, but we also have some who donate no time to any of these things. And again, answer me. My time belongs to who? Everything I, I am, everything I own belongs to him. My time is God's time. So take a look at that list, and I want every partner in this church right now to re reach somewhere in front of you and pull out a communication card. Go ahead and do it. I'm looking to see if you're moving. 
Some, some of you need to wake him up. Um, grab a communication card, pull that card out. Every partner, don't, not me and my wife are on one card. Every partner, you have your own card and put your name on the front of that card. And then you'll have some time while this next song's being sung because I want you to remain seated. But during this song, I want you to look at that list and I want you to say, by writing on the card up on the top corner there, a blank space somewhere on that card. Here's where I want to be generous with my time this year. It could be more than one. But I don't think any, I don't think there's anybody here, listen, who cannot afford four hours before December 31st. Do you? Four hours. Where am I going to serve? Some of you already are, and that's great. And at the end of this song, I want you to just pass this card to the aisle. And Ben, I'd like for our ushers just to go around and pick these up. Uh, when we're done. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.